You're listening to Michael Easley in Context. And now your host, Michael Easley. Well, welcome to In Context. This episode, it continues our discussion from last week. So if you've not listened to part one, I want to encourage you to go back and start there. First, let me start with a reading from Romans chapter 15, and then we'll join the message in progress. Romans 15 verses 12 to 13 reads, again, Isaiah says, there shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises will rule over the Gentiles. In him shall the Gentiles hope. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, this section of Romans takes a little bit of development, but let me just say it very succinctly. Paul is talking about the alignment of the Jew to the patriarchs, the Jews, and how the Gentiles fit in the program. Paul likes the phrase one another a lot, and it's mentioned in here. And he's saying you need to treat one another like Jesus did when he came as a servant. And that's how we get along in the family of Jew and Gentile. A little history on Jew and Gentile to, to remind us and re- focus us on the passage. Um, when we go back to Abraham's covenant, covenant promise, God told Abraham he'd be a blessing to the world. But the Jew was also a covenant people to be separate from the world. And so there was a tension there how you dealt with those outside, well, let's just call it the tribes. You weren't to intermarry, you weren't to take their children, but those things happened. So the tension was how are they to be a blessing to the world on the one hand, but on the other hand they're not to be involved with it. It's a legitimate question the rabbis and pious Jews would have. When Jesus comes, he tears the curtain from top to bottom. And Paul writes that in this way, there's neither male nor female, neither slave nor free, neither Jew nor Greek. All are one in Christ. So gender's not the issue. Racial tensions, nationalities aren't the issue. Neither male nor female, Jew, Gentile or Jew, slave or free. Doesn't matter your station in life. We're one in Christ. Now, you have to see a little bit of God's sense of humor. You take a rabbi's rabbi, a Jew's Jew named Paul, an Ivy Leaguer who's trained in the way of Judaism all the way down the line. His pedigree is unimpeachable as a Jew's Jew. He comes to Christ, and his job is to take that message to the Gentile. The Jew referred in the Old Testament to the Gentile as the goyim, the people that were not part of Judaism, not part of Israel. Goy is not always, but sometimes it's a derogative term. They're goy. Uh, think of uh, uh, films, or maybe if you've been to Lancaster Counting, you've been around Amish, whatnot. There's the English, and then there's the community. And you don't relate to English. You stay away from them. And that's not unlike the Jew. And the problem is today, when you go to Israel, because it is God's will, you will go to the Wailing Wall and you will stand there and you will ask me or someone, Michael, why are there so many different Jews? And I will say, you're beginning to learn. It'd be like saying, explain to me American Christianity. Let's write a big book to explain it, right? We can't explain. I mean, there are so many iterations of what people call Christian, right? From all sorts of denominational lines that have nothing to do with each other. That's Judaism. Judaism has so many different sects and segments and groups, so it's really hard to get your head around what's Judaism today. And they don't agree among themselves, obviously. So when the gospel comes, Jesus came to his own, and his own knew him not. 
And so the gospel goes to the Gentile. The Gentile embraces it in mass. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the remotest part of the earth. Your Bible is a chronology of Acts 1-8 of Paul becoming this Jewish missionary to the Gentiles and blowing up the world. And all these letters you read are Paul going further and further from the center of Judaism to take Christianity around the globe. That's why we call our missions global, because that was the objective. Take it to the remotest part of the world. And each of these letters is written in a context. Paul's writing to Roman believers, and he's saying, look, you have to get along as Jew and Gentile, and the way you do it is to look at how Christ treated one another. That's the short summary Let's acknowledge the patriarchs because through the patriarchs came Jesus and we have a proper respect of the patriarchs because they were God-fearing, pious, we call them believers, Jewish believers, but the message went to the Gentile. And far more Gentiles embraced it in the first century than Jews. Well, Paul uses four Old Testament passages in the sections of Romans. We're just going to look at uh, two verses in verses 12 and 13. And he calls him the God of hope. And if you were to look at this passage in some detail, um, we like the, the phrase abounding in hope because that's the primary message of verse 13 is that we're one abounding in hope. Now Paul prays, verse 13 is almost like a benediction on the heels of this quotation that there will come the root of Jesse. And that Jesse, of course, was the father of David, which is why I mentioned the Davidic line. So from the, from the origin, from the beginning of Jesse, part of the fruit of Jesse is a boy named David who becomes king. And he who arises will rule over the Gentiles. Now we've, we've made a category shift. Wait a minute. Isaiah is prophesying that this Jewish king is going to rule over Gentiles, the whole world, which is tipping the hand toward Messianic. And in him, the Gentiles hope, which is a strange phrase. Do you think Gentiles sat on the outside looking at Jews in the first century? I wish I could be one of them. Why does Paul write in this way? Why does the Old Testament write this way? When they met Yeshua, when they met Jesus, he was a Jew. Now the Jews rejected him, a lot of them, but some embraced him. He's a Jew. And the question is, how Jewish do I have to be to be part of this club? Which was the big kerfuffle in Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem council. You might remember the story. Saul and Barnabas are out seeing people come to Christ like crazy, and the Jews say, wait a minute, you guys come home and give a report. What are you doing out there? We hear about these Gentiles becoming saved. You've got to make a report. It's a big, huge kerfuffle. It's almost there's, there's some humor in studying it because they're like evaluating, well, how Jewish do you have to be to be a Christian? Because these guys were all pedigreed they were all trained by the rabbis, rabbinics. They were fluent in Hebrew and Aramaic. They knew the languages. They knew the systems. They knew about the Passover. These Gentiles, these goy didn't know anything. Why Paul's message is all the more poignant. Neither Jew nor Greek. Slave nor free. Doesn't matter your station or lot or race or gender. The gospel's for all. And so fast forward, Paul smiles as he leaves, and he goes on his way sharing Christ with the Gentile world. Notice in verse 13, it's like a benediction. May, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. First of all, God is the origin or the source of hope. This is so important. It's a fine distinction, but make a note. You and I aren't the source of hope. You and I don't engender and foam up and lather up, let me hope and hope and hope. No, God is the originator of hope. 
Hope originates. He's the source. God is the source of hope. The God of hope will fill you with all joy and peace. The assurance of knowing God comes joy and peace. Luther writes, the apostle places joy first and then peace. Because it is joy that gives peace to men, engendering this in their hearts. Um, if we try to hope against hope, and I'm, I hope I'm going to do a better job today, I hope I, I lick this cancer, I hope chemo works, I hope my mother comes to Christ, I hope my teenage son uh, changes his ways, I hope my teenage daughter finds... I mean, those are fine phrases, but there's no hope in hope. That's like faith in faith. That's the little engine that could theology. I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. What did he do? He worked harder. That's the true story of the little engine. He worked harder. It wasn't that he zenned his way over the hill. When you go to a football game or a basketball game and you're hoping the field goal is going to be made and all the, all the audience is like, think good thoughts. It'll go through the arches. It doesn't do a thing. Trust me. There's no juju in this stuff. That's the little engine that could theology. You're not hoping in hope. You're hoping in God, the source of hope. And as you hope in the God of hope, you find joy and peace. And that's otherworldly stuff, men and women. That's not just positive mental attitude. That's a peace that surpasses comprehension. That's an otherworldly thing. And when you're in the middle of the storm, you go... I'm trusting in God right now. I don't see the outcome. I don't see the end. But I'm resting in Him. And then as I often say, you can smile at the future even when the immediate is unsure. Even when the next step is unknown. You can smile in the future because He's a good God. Does that mean we're not going to die or have Alzheimer's or dementia or breast cancer or fill in the blank? No. Because we're fallen people in a fallen context. And because we're fallen people in a fallen context, things are always going to be broken. Get over it. Have hope in Him, not hope in the circumstance. Your and my ability to maintain a relationship with Him is the key. Your and my ability, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, there's the relationship, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 5.18, Paul uses a picture that I love. He says, don't be drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that passage is so simple, it's often misunderstood. Don't take an external substance and drink it to excess to where it controls you. Because if you drink too much wine, you're going to be controlled by wine. That's why a quiet person becomes a loud braggart or a passive person becomes contentious and fights when they're drunk. Don't take an external substance and let it control you. Rather, be filled with, that's not quantity, be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Don't let the external substance control you. Let the internal person of God's Spirit control you. And that takes one simple thing, letting go of control. I'm going to trust Christ in me by obeying, by faithfully staying with God's Word, God's Spirit, God's people. And I'm going to say to myself, Michael, you can't do that. Michael, you can't have that. Michael, you don't need to go there. I talk to myself all the time. 
I'm sure I'm clinically insane. I'm positive I am totally insane. I talk to myself all the time. Michael, you got to get out of bed. Michael, you got to deal with this. You got to go forward. Michael, you can't do that. You, no, no, you can't have that. You must say no. I don't care who else is doing it easily. No, you can't do that. And I'm asking God's Spirit, will you help me in that resolve? Because it's not a fight of, the, fight of the flesh. It's a contentious fight of the Spirit to say, whose Spirit's going to win this engagement, me or him? And it's trusting him. And that's what Paul says. By believing in him, so that you will abound in hope. Some concluding thoughts, four points. Number one, when we lose hope, we focus on we, we lose hope when we focus on human resources. We lose hope when we focus on human resources. Now that doesn't mean we don't get people to help us, but if we exclusively focus on human resources, we're going to get disappointed. Uh, men, perhaps not always, but men tend to be fixers. We tend to be. I can do this. I can resolve it. I'm smart enough. Uh, what do you want done? I mean, how many conversations have you had as a husband and wife when Cindy's telling me a problem? And, and I've learned as I've gotten older in marriage to say, honey, do you want me just to listen to you or would you like me to offer suggestions? And 9.9 times out of 10, she'll pause and go, just listen to me. And I go, okay. And I just sort of ignore her. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> you really don't want my help. You just want to talk to me. Okay, talk to me. Because uh, guys are wired to fix. Well, let's do this. Let's do that. We can remedy that. I know some people that have those resources. And the problem with focusing only and always on human resources is we're not trusting God. Now, does that mean we don't call a repairman or a tech friend? No. But if our hope is always horizontal in men, what's the, what's the end result? We're always looking to people to solve our problems. Secondly, suffering is the sandpaper of faith and hope. Suffering is the sandpaper of faith and hope. Um, I do not think we learn apart from pain. We think we learn. We think we think. But when you get the report that it is cancer, when you get the report that your mom or dad has dementia, when you get the report that your son or daughter is in big trouble, when you get the report, that's when life makes up its mind. As I said so many times, I don't trust God when my health, my life, my family, my finances, I, I love what I do. I don't trust God. You touch any one of those areas, I get busy trusting God. The corollary is kind of scary. We're fallen people in a fallen context, but God uses sandpaper to make us what we're not. I don't think you learn. I don't think we have the capacity to learn until we hurt. And I need help. I've used this before. Some of you may recognize it. Phillips Brooks, 1884, the candle of the Lord. The reason we are led into trouble and out again is not merely that we may value happiness the more from having lost it and found it again. The idea is that God doesn't just take us into trouble and take us out so we say, oh, you know, when I live with chronic pain, when I was dealing with cancer chemotherapy, when my son or daughter was breaking my heart, when I was going through a divorce, it stunk. It was horrible. And now that I'm out of that, I feel so much better. That's a very shallow view of it. He continues, but that we may know something which we could not have known except by that teaching, that we may bear upon our natures some impress which could not have been stamped except on natures just so softened to 
receive it. That's a $25 quote. Because when the sandpaper is rough enough and you and I can't run to resources, human resources to get help, we cry a theological uncle. But that's not the point. The point is now you're ready to listen. When you see the third or fourth specialist and they go, no, this is aggressive cancer and you've got these traditional treatments or you can go try the the non-traditional treatments. Now you're ready to listen. And who do you want to talk to? Somebody who survived. Doctors are fabulous. I love doc- I love the medical profession. I really, I truly do. I, they help me tremendously. But I'd rather talk to someone who's had the back surgery I'm about to have than just my back surgery. How did you do two, four, six years later? Because they do their job. I live with the result, not the surgeon. Surgeon does a great job. They can't control everything. I know that. I want to talk to somebody who's been on the other side of it. So when you have a son or daughter that goes into dark places, when your marriage goes into dark places, when somebody breaks your heart, when your parents talking to someone earlier in the dementia issues, and you have to put them in an assisted living or not, who do you want to talk to? Somebody else who's done that. That's when the impress is able. That's when I'm ready to listen. I don't care one whit about grief if I haven't lost somebody. I lose my father, lose my wife. Now I want to learn about grief. Thirdly, hopelessness seems to be an accumulation of a lot of small loss. Hopelessness seems to be an accumulation of a lot of small losses. Um, Young man that I've known for many, many years, one of the brightest young men I was privileged to know, and we lived in Virginia, discipled him, taught him, incredible man, great marriage, great kids. He had a series of losses. And each one of those losses created doubt in his relationship with God. And over a period of about two years, he walked away from his marriage, walked away from his kids, walked away from God. He's smarter than me. I can't, I can't argue with him anymore. I just love him and pray for him. And I don't frankly even know how to love him. And I could be wrong, but I would submit the accumulation of a lot of loss got him to a place of hopelessness where now he dulls his pain in different ways. And last, true hope is a person, not circumstance. True hope is in a person, not circumstance. Which goes a little counter to my first point about don't always turn to human resources. Uh, Because when I have back trouble and I've tried X, Y, and Z and I know it's time to talk to my surgeon, I know that man can help me because he's helped me twice before. And I want to go see him because he's got the skills to cut and go in there and do what needs to be done. My hope is in that doctor, not the medical system. My hope is in a counselor friend who's been through this. My hope is in a person who's gone through a divorce and they understand me. My person is my, 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 a person is someone who's filling a blank. When people lose a sense, when they lose their hearing or their sight, it's been proven again and again and again. They want to talk to someone else who lost their sight or lost their hearing, not the people that are trying to teach you how to deal with it makes sense. So the ultimate solution is the person who's done it all right, who's got it all down, who knows all about you. Our hope comes in Christ, not in our circumstance. So we're living in a time when if you turn on the news today or read the papers today or go on the internet and look at your news sources today, you're going to read bad stuff. I do. I read a lot of it. Maybe that's part of my problem. 
My hope isn't in some world leader who's going to make it all right. My hope is in that person who from the beginning of time has existed before eternity passed, who exists, who came, who was born, who died, was buried, resurrected, came back from the dead, and any and all who trust in Him are given the free gift of eternal life and forgiveness of sins and a relationship with Him. And here is the person with all the resources in the universe saying, why are you hopeless? I've overcome the world. I've overcome the grave. Get your eyes off the loss and get it on me. You know, the Christmas season becomes a lot of things, a barrage of shopping, decorating, parties, food. Maybe you still send Christmas cards in the mail, but it can also be a time of hardship, of loneliness, of sadness, of loss, of brokenness. Can you, can I turn the noise down? Can we let that fade in the background a little bit and recalibrate into the light of the hope of the God incarnate? A baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, which, by the way, is an image of death wrappings. A baby born and wrapped in death cloths, laid in a manger. He emptied himself of glory. He left heaven's glory. He became flesh, born to die that we may live. He loves you. He died for you. He did for you what you and I could never do for ourselves. He is our great hope. This is Michael Easley, In Context. In Context is made possible by donations from listeners like you. If you're a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or monthly donation at michaelincontext.com? Thank you.